my name's John, and uh, I've got the privilege of speaking about the life of nations. Uh, two weeks ago, Dan did Theology of Nations. Last week, Charlie did Destiny of Nations. And next week, Christopher Landau is doing The Church in the Nations. So I've said my name is John. My wife, Susan, is over here. Uh, let me explain how I come to be here doing this. Um, long story, really, but it, just tell you a bit of my CV. 1979 to 1992, we lived and worked in Jerusalem, where I was the head of the Anglican International School. And then the former rector, David McInnes, uh, because I'd been ordained in Jerusalem, he invited me to come here as the associate minister. So I was the minister here from 1992 to 2004. And Susan, for part of that time, was a pastor to women and to the children's church. Then in 2004, we moved to Britwell in Slough, where we were there for 10 years, and now I'm retired in Botley. And uh, Charlie asked me a year or so ago to have oversight of the midweek communion. That's a communion that meets at 11 a.m. on a Wednesday. It was there today. It will be there next Wednesday if you wish to go. Nina is the speaker next week, and there's a, a lunch following. And anyone can go, Paris Centre, 11 a.m., Good, I hope you know about that. But anyway, that is not just a ministry to older people, because there are quite some younger people who come. But, you know, if you want to, I was laughing today because Gillian and Molly were sitting there. They have been in this church, uh, I mean, they're both 92, 93, old enough to be my mother, and they have been in this church since about 1960 or something like that. Uh, you don't often see Gillian in her wheelchair here. Perhaps you do sometimes on a Sunday morning. Don't often see Molly here on a Sunday, but they find a, a haven on Wednesday at 11 o'clock, and just to meet them is a privilege. Now, I'm a fairly traditional person. I'm an Anglican Church of England vicar, and I pray for Her Majesty the Queen. I pray for her on a regular basis. I think this is perhaps one of the most wonderful people, perhaps the most wonderful person in our country. She's head of our church, the Church of England. She's head of our country. She's a believing Christian. She became, she fully convinced of her faith when Billy Graham was here many, many years ago. And you know, you can be sure that next Christmas at three o'clock in the afternoon on Christmas Day, Queen Elizabeth will speak about Jesus and about the gospel and about the cross and about the Bethlehem. And she will make sure that her people know about Jesus. So I pray for her. I also pray in my traditional way for the prime minister. I won't mention his name, the leader of the opposition. I've recently added Joe Swinson to my prayer list. I'm not quite sure about why that is, but I have. And I believe in universal suffrage and I vote every time I have the opportunity. I don't believe that Boris or Jeremy to be the Messiah. Don't believe that Donald or Hillary is the Messiah. I believe the Messiah's position is already taken. I pray for my nation, I pay my taxes, but I also pray thy kingdom come. And that doesn't mean for Brexit or for British rule or for the European rule, that means the rule and reign of God. And as I've said, this talk is about the life of the nations and nations are made up of peoples. And I want us to end this evening in just over an hour's time. We're going to have two breaks where we talk together about things. I want us to end up saying a prayer together. Let my people go. 
And here's the text, I think, from the original, from Exodus. Exodus 9.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Of course, that was to the Israelites in Egypt. And then the black slaves in America took it up. Martin Luther took it up with to great effect. And people all over the world have been taking up that cry and saying to the Lord and saying to the rulers of nations, let my people go. But before we can get to that, I have to ask you, who are your people? Who are the people you want to see free? I've probably told you who I want to see free. Boris and Jeremy and gang, but that's me. What about you? A couple of questions to get you started. We're not going to ask these questions yet. I'm just going to introduce these two questions. The first one is, who here does not have a Facebook account? One, two, three. David, Andrew, David, and uh, Michael, and somebody at the back there, I don't know. And somebody, not many of us. But those of us who are on Facebook, so I apologize to the rest of you for the, those five of you. You know, we're assaulted by quizzes and adverts, aren't we? There was one that came on a, a few weeks ago and it said that a friend of mine had been to 38 countries. And I thought, I bet I've been to more than 38 countries. So I immediately did the quiz and I found that I'd been to 41 countries. And then it said, post your answer on Facebook. And a little voice in my ear, it was the voice of my youngest son, says, Dad, don't do that. You're adding to advertising. You're selling something to somewhere. I mean, my son runs a company which does, I mean, this is what it says. He, a company whose algorithms provide an intelligence layer for biddable media. I have no idea what that means. But it does mean that I shouldn't press that button that says share. So why am I talking about Facebook? Because for me, Facebook reminds me that the world we live in is very small, that national boundaries are less than significant. I mean, I don't want country A or nation A to beat up nation B because I know somebody in A and they're nice and I know somebody in B and they're my friend. And I mean, for those of us who've lived in the Middle East, it helps you realize that if you take sides in the Middle East, I know wonderful Egyptians, Palestinians, Israelis, Syrians too. But of course, social media and all that sort of thing also divides us, doesn't it? Uh, some years ago, I liked a post on Facebook by my MP at the time, uh, Nicola Blackwood. Nicola, as you know, at one time was, uh, she's a Tory MP. She got chucked out of the last election. She was once upon a time a member of this church. Anyway, Facebook immediately told all my friends, John is supporting the Tories. And I got a private message from a Christian friend of mine who said, it is impossible for a Christian to be a Tory. And I wrote back a little bland thing saying, I'm not a Tory. And he, unfriend he unfriended me. Recently on Twitter, I liked something that said, pray for Boris. And somebody wrote back and said, there is no way a Christian should ever pray for Boris. Boris should be committed to the pit of, well. And I thought, wow, doesn't it divide us? Because I don't pray for Boris because I think he's the Messiah. I don't pray for Boris because I think he's the most wonderful. I pray for him because he's the leader of the country that I'm, I live in. But my American Christian friends are worse. Uh, sorry to you Americans, but when we were in Israel, I used to teach a lot of children, but they've all now grown up, and I've probably got about three or 400 Christian friends across the United States who, uh, who were kids in school, but they're now in their 40s and 50s and stuff like that. And you know, they are so divided. 
about Donald and Hillary. And they use such coarse language to each other about the fact that, you know, Donald's this and Hillary was that. And you think, oh, well, anyway, enough of that. Let's me come to the questions. Because you know as well as I do, there is social media. Facebook does that. Uh, one other little thing. Has anyone had a DNA test? Anybody had a DNA test? Am I the only one that's had a DNA test? Same son that I've already mentioned bought me a DNA test. And because I've studied the family tree since I was a teenager, I already knew that I would be part Anglo-Saxon, part Cornish, part from the northeast of England. And I also knew that I would have an element, a trace element of Spanish blood. Uh, not a very big element, uh, if you don't want to know this, but I'll tell you anyway. My sixth great-grandfather, Thomas, married Anne Baldry in 1716. Anne was the great-great-granddaughter of Edmundo Baldero, who came from Spain in the 15th century and changed his name from Baldero to Baldry. Uh, so I've got a little bit of a trace element in me. But let me draw this to so that you can begin your first question. Humans need to belong. The scriptures are so clear, aren't they? Psalm 68, verse 6. He sets the lonely in families. He gives the orphans families. But it's just another aspect that I'd throw into you. When we were at Love Oxford, did anybody, we were at Love Oxford the other way? And did you notice that, I think it was Charlie who said about the number of ethnic churches that are growing in Oxford. And that's interesting to us, because when we lived in Slough, I mean, one of the things when we moved from Slough back to Oxford, we looked around our congregation. We go to this, ch this church at 6 o'clock on a Sunday, but we go to the church in Botley at uh, 9.30 on Sunday morning. We go there, and I, we looked around, and there was nobody other than white English people. And then the organist stood up, and she was Chinese. Oh, wow. Because in Slough, it was totally the opposite. You might look around and say, oh, look, there's a white person over there. But, but it was hard to get everybody to join in because the Zimbabweans don't want to come to the Church of England. They want to go to a Zimbabwean church. The people from St. Kitts want to go to a Ketitian church because they get food that's from St. Kitts and they feel at home there. And the Polish people don't want to come to the, our church because they want to go to a Polish church, etc., etc. Well, you know what I'm saying. We're a very diverse bunch. And... We're getting more and more mixed. You know, four generations ago in Britain, we were sort of pure English or pure Anglo-Saxon or pure something, but we're getting very mixed. So who are my people? So what I'm going to ask you to do, somebody, you know, there's always somebody, when you sit at the table, you'll notice who's already become the leader. Somebody will have appointed themselves as leader and said, oh, who are you? How are you? But anyway, whoever that person is, the question I'd like us to do is just to ask people their name. I, I was going to ask about DNA, but there's no one here. Forget about that. Ask people what they think about Facebook and what I said about Facebook. And just ask them if they're willing to say, and they don't have to say, who their people are and who their nation is, or what their nation is. Um, I hope you've got good introductions there. Having worked in this church, I always found it fascinating. You'd sit next to somebody and find they were a doctor from a town in China that I'd never heard of. And they'd say, well, it has got 22 million people in it, and you think, <laughs> Uh, which is a third the size of the United Kingdom, and that's just one city. But anyway, it's int always interesting to meet people. 
but I'm going to continue to talk about peoples and nations. And I'm asking myself the question, and I'm asking you that question, how do I, how do I know my people? How do I pray for my people? Who are my people? What is my nation? I'm also going to speak, because we lived in Israel, I'm going to speak about Jews in Israel. But I'm not going to unpack the whole theology of Israel. I'm not a Christian Zionist. If you don't know what one of those is, put it in Google. I'm not a replacement theologian. That's where people believe that all the promises in the Bible that were made to Israel of old have now been transferred to the church and the promises are no longer valid for Israel. But of course, when you say Israel in that context, you don't mean the nation state of Israel. You mean the whole, the whole people of Israel, what we now call the Jewish people, of which there are more Jewish people in America than there are in Israel. And I'm also not a two-covenant theologian. That is where Jewish people get a sort of, you know, on the old covenant, Moses and the rest, they get straight into heaven on that. Uh, we have to go through the cross. No, uh, we believe that, I believe that everyone needs to come to the cross, Jews and Gentiles. So I'm more of an enlargement theologian. And there's an interesting little book by a man called Jacob Yotz, J-O-C-Z. Uh, but you can find that and if, it gives a good summary of that. But I'm not going to get into that because to get into that and how each nation should respond to Israel and blah, 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 that is just, that's just something that is not what this talk is about. I'm going to just on a couple of little points here. First point is I don't believe that democracy is biblical. Um, let's just throw that out. We got, you can talk about that in a moment. I mean, there are 7.7 billion people in this world and less than half of them have any form of democracy, and only 10% of them have what we call democracy. I mean, for instance, the ancient Israelites, that wasn't a democracy, that was a, a, tribal, theocracy, a, a, a tribal theocracy, where decisions were actually made either sort of by holding the Urim and Thummim and praying, or by casting lots. I mean, occasionally the Israelites became a nation. I mean, when they wanted to become a nation in 1 Samuel 8, 19, Samuel says, no, God does not want you to become a nation. And they said, please, we want to be a nation like everybody else. Give us a king. Okay, says Samuel, we'll give you Saul. And we know how that turned out. By New Testament times, it was still, but not a tribal theocracy because tribes had been dispersed. It was based on the temple sacrifice. It was a theocracy living under the harsh rule of, the Rome, of Rome and the Herods. I mean, some of the Jews cozied up to Herod, uh, like some of the church leaders cozy up to the leaders now. But they even still cast lots for big decisions, unless there was a powerful high priest who could enforce his will. I mean, the church has been similarly governed. Is the church, you can argue about this, is it a priestly theocracy? Is the Church of England that? I mean, some years ago, I was discussing the Church of England and its problems. These were actually over same-sex marriage. I was discussing them. How I came to do this is another story altogether. I was discussing them with a Coptic bishop in a town that you've never heard of that's got more than two million people somewhere sort of 100 miles south of Cairo. And he was saying, John, I don't understand how the Church of England could have got into such a mess over this issue. And then during this discussion, it suddenly dawned on him. And he said, you mean Justin Welby is not a pope? Because Coptic Christians have a pope. I said, no, Justin Welby's not a pope. And he said, then that's why you've got problems. 
because church leadership in England has changed over the past 50 years. We, as it says, we are episcopally led, that means by bishop, and synodically governed. Charlie's on the general synod, and so he gets to vote on these issues. And we, we might actually practice democracy in this church. I doubt it. It's really democracy. I doubt if you belong to a Baptist church or the only church that practices democracy to full is probably the United Reformed Church, but that's another story. But in our democracy, in our church, or in our nation, in my opinion, it's pressure groups, or those who've got power, or those who've got, got some angle, they're the people who are actually governing our nation. They're the people who are actually governing our church. You know, Twitter only has to say something about the church, and the archbishop has to put out a statement. Twitter says something, and the leaders of our nation tremble. I have a feeling that democracy is so yesterday. I think future generations will just study democracy as some, another failed system. But you can discuss that. You know, people just believe and they, they want what's best for them. Even in the church. I mean, people go to a church where people have got to be like me. And if they're not like me, I'll go and join another church. But you see, Jews are not like that. I mean, the rise of anti-Semitism you know, tells you immediately Jews stick together. Or if you go to a country where there's persecution, Christians stick together like glue. But our bonds with fellow believers are not that strong. Here's an interesting text, Acts 1 verse 6. This is just at the ascension. And they gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And as you know, Jesus dodges the answer because Jesus is interested in bringing about the kingdom of God. He's not interested in, he doesn't mind if they restore the political state. He's not condemning the political state, but he wants the rule and reign of God. He wants believers wherever they are, that they will work and participate in their nations, but their goals are higher and hopefully humbler. Just a word about angry Christians. It really does worry me that we have a lot of angry Christians. We've got to be humble and not sinning. All these hashtags from Christians, not my prime minister, not my president, it really does bother me. <laughs> I don't mean that they're any good. I just mean that we should be praying for them and loving them. Anyway, that's a little bit about democracy. You can talk about that in a moment if you wish. What about nations? I mean, nations are groups with power and control and boundaries. Well, they are in the Bible anyway. But peoples means a group of people who have something in common. And in the Bible, it's often, or mostly through, it's either a tribe, the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Simeon, or it's later on in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, the Judeans, or in the New Testament, the Judeans are still there, the Jews as they're called in the New Testament, they're still there, but then comes these Christians. And so there are peoples who've got something in common, but are different to nations. And Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. So what does that actually mean, thy kingdom come? I'll leave you to think about that. Because in this country, and I can only speak for British history at this moment, we used to think that praying thy kingdom come meant the British Empire expanding all over the world and sending missionaries, and therefore the rule and reign of God would be brought about by uh, the British forces and navy. If you didn't like it, we'd send a gunboat and sort you out. Strange, isn't it? 
former rector of this church, David McInnes, who I used to work for here, uh, he had a fascinating sermon. I'm just going to give you a potted thing on this. It's about the destiny of Britain. And in it, he traced things like in the 17th century, 17th, 18th century, Britain was about to go down the tubes like France and have a revolution. But John Wesley and George Whitfield and others called the nation back to God. You know that part of our history, don't you? Do you know that? George Whitfield had an experience of the Holy Spirit in Pembroke College, and it was such a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit. He ran down that street there across the road to Charles, across the road to Christ Church to tell John and Charles Wesley, the Lord has met me. And I think from that moment on, John Wesley knew that even though he was already ordained in the Church of England, he needed something. And so some people believe, and our former rector believed, that that called our nation back to God, brought us back from the brink of revolution. Then he would go on and say in the 19th century, Moody and Sankey came from America. Then in the early 20th century, there was the Sunderland Awakening. And then in the 1950s, Billy Graham came and preached and saved the Church of England. You know, busloads of people. I can remember from my church, I was too young to go. They went, you know, and the vicar went forward and became a Christian. I mean, the, the, the John, the Billy Graham brought the church back to God. And then there's David Watson, the renewal, John Wimber, the Toronto blessing, all calling this nation back to God. And David would end his sermon saying, well, what now? Who's going to call our nation back to God? But of course, that does assume that Britain has to continue to be this nation that, uh, you know, does it have to be invincible to fulfill the purposes of God? Because God disposes of nations just like that. He's not interested really in nations. Well, he is, but he's not that interested. I mean, biblically, nations are scary things, aren't they? And they're not always heading in the right direction. But God does use nations. Look at Cyrus, king of the Persians. He's not a nice person. He was not democratically elected. But after the ministry of Daniel in the lion's den, he said an edict to say, send the people of Israel back to Jerusalem. Let them rebuild their temple. And Isaiah and others see Cyrus as God's agent. In my lifetime, Gorbachev of Russia is not a saint either but he was an Orthodox Christian, but God used him to break down the Iron Curtain, to set East and West Germany free, and to set many Jews free. It's interesting, we lived and worked in Jerusalem in the 1980s, as I've already said, and there was often a discussion there, um, you know, was it our job to bring the knowledge of Jesus to the Jewish people, or was it our job as Christians to help the nation of Israel to fulfill its destiny? As I've already said, we, I'm not going to go there. And some said we couldn't do both. Some said we could. But in talking about Jews and Israel, you must remember that contemporary Judaism is very different to biblical Judaism. Judaism today is organized by what's called Halakha. Hal, Halakha, I can't even say it now. I was having a hard job trying to pronounce Serenus's name a moment ago. So anyway, by Halakha. That is, the Bible, the Talmud, the Mishnah, and all the written laws with deb rabbis debate forever. And that is how, but in the New Testament times, it wasn't governed by that. It was governed by the Old Testament, the Bible part of it, but it was governed by the priests and the ta sacrificial system in the temple. 
Jews don't sacrifice today. They have that great system of laws and rules, but they don't sacrifice today. Well, except some ultra-Orthodox Jews. Have you ever seen ultra-Orthodox Jews sacrifice? Are you squeamish? Shall I tell you? They always, um, the ultra-Orthodox are people who don't believe, they live in Israel, they don't believe in the state of Israel, but they're the guys, many of the guys, you know, the black hats, the long curlies, and we used to live right next door to them. Anyway, so they walk past our house every day going to prayers and stuff. And uh, at Yom Kippur, that's the Day of Atonement, they would go up to the market and buy a chicken. Often take the family, sometimes take the chicken home, take the family up to the market, stand the family in a, in, in, in a circle, slit the chicken's throat, and then swing the chicken round so that blood went all over them so that that sacrifice would take away their sins. Because there are no sacrifices in the temple and those Jews believe that there should be. I was sitting in the front garden of our school one day with an elderly Jewish lady who was not a believing Christian but she worked for me as a, an English teacher and she was sitting there and there was this orthodox man going by carrying a, two great bags of chickens, live chickens in those sort of open plastic things going by like this, struggling by and she said, she looked at those chickens and she said, John, she said, it'd take more than two bag loads of chickens to take away my sins. Anyway, I nearly got lost there. Let's go back. I'm trying to help us to understand who are my people, who am, who am I, who, who are my people, who should I be praying for, and how do we let the Bible inform us? The Bible surely does inform us that nations are dangerous things, yet God uses them. But God out of nations is calling a people. Ezra Nehemiah. Ever, anybody read Ezra Nehemiah? Anybody remember Lena Tehemiah, who was once part of this church? She'd just written an excellent book. She's a professor in Aberdeen or somewhere on Ezra Nehemiah. And so I love Ezra Nehemiah, but let's not go there too far. But it gives us a background to how the Jews in the New Testament were thinking. Because it's, they weren't actually called Jews in Ezra Nehemiah. They were called Judeans. And they were only Judeans, and well, and Benjaminites. Benjaminites too, but they were only from two tribes. The other ten tribes were the lost tribes of Israel, and they went somewhere like Spain and became my ancestors. I don't know. But as you read Ezra and Nehemiah and the people coming back, they've been sent back because Cyrus, the terrible king of Persia, has given an edict to send them back, and now the king of Persia has decided that Ezra needs to go over there and teach them about the laws and the way the temple should work. And there are two sorts of people that they have problems with, that Ezra has problems. There are people who are there who can't actually prove themselves to be Jews, because there was no DNA test. And there are people there, Jews who are there, who have actually, and I'm saying Jews, but I mean Judeans, there were Jews there who'd gone and married foreign wives, and Ezra comes along and says, you can't have foreign wives and foreign kids. They'll spoil their whole, you know, send them away. Divorce them. Because to be Jewish, you have to have a Jewish mother. So, you know, some Jew can't go off and marry some Canaanite and then sort of produce a bunch of kids and say, here are my little Jewish family. They're not. Send them away, says Ezra. And it really is a hard book to read. And it's been hard for Jewish believers, that is, Messianic believers, uh, who have, people who've come to love and know Jesus. I mean, there are some 20,000 in the state of Israel, perhaps 30,000 in a population of, say, 6 million. 
There are a lot of Jewish believers in Israel. There's something like a half a million of them, a quarter of a million of them in the USA. But the problem is, up until quite recently, they said, well, you become a believer in Jesus, out. You're not Jewish. You can't believe in that Nazarene and be a Jew. And that was exacerbated for us when we were in Israel. I mean, we were there, we were actually having a Shabbat meal with a man who was in the Israeli army, and he's also an estate agent, and he suddenly heard on the radio that 36,000 Falasha, Ethiopian Jews, had been brought back to Israel. And he kept turning on the radio, he was supposed to be entertaining us for a Sabbath meal, and he kept dancing around. Oh, there are more, there are 10,000 more coming, they're bringing all the planes, all the Jews are coming home. The sheer excitement, exuberance of that man. But of course, the problem for Israel was, the state of Israel that is, they brought a whole load of Christians amongst them. Because a lot of the Jewish people, the flashes in Ethiopia became Christians. And then a little while later, Gorbachev let down the Iron, iron Curtain and half a million, no, yeah, 500,000 Russian Jews came back to Israel. But again, a lot of them were Christians. So when we went up to our local market, you know, the swinging of the chicken market, when we went up to our local market, suddenly, instead of the, all the Jewish men being, because men go shopping, okay? In the, when I went on a Friday afternoon, women are at home cooking. But anyway, normally I'm this tall, but normally an Israeli is this tall, and he's sort of a medium sort of brown color. But suddenly there were these short, very dark Ethiopian Jews. And they didn't like that, so they had to in introduce a new chief rabbi because nobody would take responsibility for them. But also coming along, there were these six foot three blonde Russian Jews. Fascinating. But what I'm trying to say is that the Jewish people, the Israelites, it is an ethnic thing. There are boundaries to those people and there are deliberate boundaries to those people. But when the gospel comes along, the gospel, yes, it's for the Jew first, but then it is for the Gentiles too. And so suddenly the church expands and it has a thing that is not ethnically defined, but it's defined by our baptism. There was one group in northern Russia of Jewish people. They went to one village. People organized, Christians from all over the world, organized buses to go and get the Jews to, to drive them across Russia and take them to some port and send them back to Israel. There was such excitement for bringing people back to the land. It really was quite exciting. But this, this one bus load, they went to a, a village and they said to these Jewish people, we've come to take you away from miserable Russia, from your poverty and everything else, and we've come to take you back to Israel. And these Jewish people said, we don't want to go to Israel. We've become believers in Jesus and Jesus has put us right here in northern Russia and he's now set us free from the tyranny of the Soviet system and we are now free to go and tell others about Jesus. We don't have to go to Israel to do that. We're Christians but we're also Jewish but we want to stay there and tell them about Jesus. So, interesting all of that. You're going to ask yourself what on earth is that man talking about in a moment but it's this you see the church and Christopher will talk about this next week the church is the church but the church to me is a subset 
of the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean I believe there are some people in the kingdom of God who are not in the church, but you know, it's not as equally, you see, we, 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 sometimes we go there, don't we? I bet some of you have belonged to a church where somebody one day said, well, you're not really tithing into this church. Are you really committed? You mean you had an Anglican baptism where you had a little bit of water and you haven't gone into the waters of baptism? Are you really a Christian? And Christians set up boundaries. When, I was, when we were young and going to a Pentecostal church, the minister, as soon as I got married, the minister took me on one side and said, are you sure as a married man you're, can, can let, you can come here with your wife without your wife wearing a hat? And I said, <laughs> I said, if I asked my wife to wear a hat, she'd tell me where to put it. <laughs> anyway, but we do, you know, Christians, we suddenly get into these divisions and we suddenly get to being defining. But the Jewish people do define themselves. So the church is really different. So here I am, a member of the church. I love the Jewish people, but I'm a member of the church, the Church of England. I love the Queen. I love my country. I pray for my country. But I'm actually, I'm actually part of something much bigger called the kingdom of God. And when I pray thy kingdom come, I am not praying that Boris, will, well I might be praying that he becomes a Christian, but I'm not praying for Boris to, you know, I'm praying for the kingdom of God to come. And my last section is going, what does that actually mean? You see, we aren't very well defined at the moment in our country. It's very ragged. And as I already said, in persecution, it immediately became, I mean, we had a Pakistani man come here, a Pakistani pastor come to this church some years ago. And he stayed for two years studying at Wycliffe Hall and his kids. And he says, I can't wait to get back to Pakistan. I said, you can't wait. To, your kids can walk along the street free. In Pakistan, you have to send them in taxis with, with reputable taxi drivers because your kids will get dragged down and, and murdered in a back lane for being Christians. Oh, he says, it's much easier. He says, with all this sort of phones and internet and stuff, there are so many temptations at home. But at home, my children know that they are Christians. They're proud to be Christians. They live as Christians. And I thought, oh, good grief. I don't quite understand how that works because I've never been in his situation. And so these boundaries are very unclear. Now, of course, and the last thing I'll say on this, some Christians, in, when, as soon as you get into politics and stuff, some Christians go over the top, don't they? and become extremely political. I mean, some of my friends on Facebook, as I've already said, and my friends on Twitter, Christians, people that I help train to be ministers, are so down the line of sort of hard socialism, hating the Tories and uh, hating everything that's to do with the, the elite and all the rest of it, and sort of got to do the poor and we've got to do this. They've almost gone over the top. Maybe they haven't. Maybe they're doing proper Christian ministry. Yet I know that others of my friends have gone in entirely the different way and said, this nation is going to hell. We have got to preach the gospel. We don't care. We're not going to vote. We're not going to bother because we don't want to participate participate in this nation we want the church to grow we want people to be saved we want people to be filled with the spirit and then the world will be changed and I'm not sure that either extreme is good so coming back to you you can answer the question if you want is democracy biblical you don't have to answer that you can ask the question is the church that you come from democratic and if people come from this side they say well come to the AGM and you, you vote but really it's all decided before you get here um, <laughs> But as you talk about this and about how you define yourself, 
as a people and to whom you belong, remember you already know there are people at your table who have totally different understanding of church, have totally different understanding of the nation. Some of them may be Jewish, Jewish believers. They have a totally different understanding from you and just listening to them may just help each of us to understand that. But the main question is, um, well, I don't know. Who are my people? Is democracy biblical? Is the church democratic? What do you think about all of that? Let's discuss that for a few minutes. I've got, uh, what we're going to do now, I've got about eight or nine minutes of something I want to say about where I feel about let my people go that they may worship me. Then we're going to read a psalm together. Then we're going to pray together, standing and pray out loud for our peoples and our nations. And then we're going to sing a rather crazy song together. If you need uh, prayer ministry, speak to the person who's leading your table, they'll sort that out for you. If you need to be welcomed to the church, you think is it, it's not all as daft as this, I can introduce you to somebody who's been here for 30 years. So uh, it's great. Oh, and there's my lovely friends, Jamie and Joe over there. Uh, I'm sorry, to, I knew I had to mention you. You were here. It's lovely to see you. They're, they're pillars of this church. Do you know that, Jamie and Joe? Uh, and my, my claim to fame, I conducted their wedding right here. Uh, about 30 years ago, I suppose. Other claim to fame is that Susan and I were on the, uh, we were on the appointing panel for Simon Ponsonby. So you can blame us if you like. Um, and they brought Joel in a little carry cot to the, and we all fell in love with Joel, so we had him. <laughs> anyway, sorry, that's. Now to the serious bit. Who are my people? Who, this is about me now, who I'm praying for, because I'm trying to get into your skin so that you will go away from here and think about who are my people? Who am I praying for? But this is me. So as Simon would say, that's why I mentioned him, Simon would say, the country's going to hell in a handcart, or some words like that. And my country appears to me as an older person to be in a mess. But for you as a younger person, it might seem fine. I see a crisis, as I see crises in the Bible, I see a crisis as an opportunity for us and for God. Just like David McInnes was talking about in his sermon. And so when I pray, let my people go, I'm praying that the Church of England, because that's where I, I found myself placed, I find that I'm praying, let my people go, because the Church of England seems to be going round in circles. It's afraid of the Twitter sphere, but it won't, I don't mean it won't stand up and say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that, but it won't speak with a prophetic voice in, an, in the nation. And at this moment, we need a prophetic voice in our nation. And our church, maybe it is doing it. But I'm praying that it will do it more. Let my people go. Because on October, the whenever we have Brexit, there may be people shaking in their boots. We may be shaking in our boots. We may be just laughing it off. But we are the people who have a confidence in God. We have a, com a savior who stands at the right hand of God. We know where we are. We know where we're going. We know to whom we belong. And we have got something that we can speak to people. 
Not to say, oh, you should have voted the other way in the referendum, shouldn't you? That's not what our prophetic message is. Our prophetic is to say, have confidence in God. Put your hand into the hand of God. So I'm praying, let my people go, that my people, the British people, the English people, the Church of England will start hanging on to God and they will be in such a crisis, they will be so shaken that their only thing that they can hang on to is God. Now this particular theme, moving on to another thought about let my people go, started for me a year ago when we were at New Wine just over a year ago. And a, new, a North Korean woman called Hei Wu, and here she is on the screen. You can only see her back view because she doesn't allow her face to be photographed. She spoke. She sang Amazing Grace in Korean, and we all cried. This woman spent more than 20 years in a North Korean jail. Her husband had already been martyred for being a pastor, she was starving and her child died. She tried to escape from North Korea. And when she tried to escape, they put her in prison. And she was in prison for more than 20 years. And she, as put it in the modern, gen modern words, she planted a church in the prison toilet because the guards wouldn't go to the prison toilet because it stunk so much. But she could talk to people about Jesus in the prison toilet. She's free now, obviously. She lives in South Korea. But she says, even after 10 years, some morning she wakes up and she's in a cold sweat. Because when she wakes, she, am I still in that prison? It's had a lasting effect on her. But during her talk, she suddenly put this next picture on the screen. And there was a gasp. Remember, this was a year ago. Donald was only just getting into his stride. Here's Kim Jong-un shaking hands with Donald Trump. And there really was a gasp in the audience. We thought, has new wine gone wrong, gone in the wrong direction? How can we have a picture of Donald Trump on the, on the screen? But for this North Korean lady, she saw that picture as the beginning of an answer to prayer for a change in her leader. She didn't necessarily want Kim Jong-un to become a Christian, because if he became a Christian, and it is said that his sister's a Christian, and that's why she's disappeared, it doesn't want him to become a Christian, because if he becomes a Christian, they'll just bump him off and put somebody even worse in charge. He, she wants to pray that he will so change, that the nation will change, that to the tens and tens and tens of thousands of Christians who are in awful camps in North Korea will be let free to, and free to go. Let my people go that they might be free to worship me. And so I began praying on that day and I tried to pray every day for that man on the left, Kim Jong-un. Let my people go. And then after a little bit, I humbled myself and decided I better start praying for Donald Trump too. <laughs> it's amazing how your attitude changes when you start praying for somebody. If you hate Boris, start praying for him. I'd love to see, wouldn't it be amazing? I mean, he's got all these smatterings of Christian faith. Wouldn't it be amazing if Donald Trump became a, a Christian in office? A real Christian. Amazing. 
you know. I, I used to know a woman in Israel and she'd come from Germany and she'd come from Germany because she was so ashamed the way the Germans had treated the Jews in the Second World War and the Holocaust and the rest of it. And so she came to Israel to work among Holocaust survivors to nurse them. And so she's, she's nursing them. You know, those people with those tattoos on their arms. Uh, but then, suddenly, Gorbachev did something and the Berlin Wall came down. And she said to me, John, can you believe this? I went to a church that was just 300 meters from the Berlin Wall. I grew up in that church, went to Sunday school in that church, went to youth group in that church, and no one ever prayed that the Berlin Wall would come down. She says, so I'm leaving Israel, I'm going back to Germany to try and find my roots to think, how did I miss that? It'd been great, wouldn't it, if that had been your prayer all your life, that the Berlin Wall had come down, and then it came down, and you think, hallelujah, but to not have ever prayed. So, I pray for Donald Trump because I think the American people are in a, a real trouble. Let my people go. And I think the church in America is in real trouble. My Christian friends, some of them are ready in Texas, some of my Christian friends are ready with guns under their bed to make Texas a, a free state away from the United States if they were ready, if Hillary Clinton became president. And now it's the war reversed. Other people are wanting to get rid of Texas because they all support Donald. It's, it's, it's a mess. Let my people go. That's not what God wants in this world. That's not what God wants in his church in America. He does not want that. Let my people go. And now I've added the pr President Rouhani of Iran and Ayatollah Khomeini. I've added them because, you know, not because of the Gulf situation and the ships, but because, did you know, in the north of England, many Iranians are becoming believers. They're being baptized and confirmed. My son uh, is a rector of a, a series of churches, and there are people there, Iranians, who have come as refugees, who are coming to know Jesus and becoming believers. And they just recently had some baptisms and confirmations. Isn't that amazing? mind they did have a, a, a conversion of a Pakistani Muslim and all uh, I was going to say all hell was let loose I've said it now and you know the police were called in and everything it seems as though you're allowed uh, an Iranian is allowed to get converted but a Pakistani Muslim or Muslim of Pakistani origin that's not allowed anyway but that's another story Modi Prime Minister of, Is of India 1.5 or 6 billion people in India. The population is increasing 22 million every year. And the Hindu separatists are pressuring the Christians. Christians are dying in India. Let my people go. And then what about President Xi Jinping of China? Let my people go. What about the Uyghur people? Yes, the Uyghur people are being locked up in great big prison camps there, but there are also Christians out there. Let my people go. And you know, those leaders that I've just mentioned actually are leaders, only, the, only America is a democracy, believe it or not, all the rest are leaders of countries, but those leaders can change those nations. Those leaders can set the people free. Let my people free that they might worship God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they're some of my people. My country. North Korea. The chaos in America, 
whatever's happening in Iran, what's happening in India, what's happening in China, they're my people, as well as my people here. Let my people go. Have you decided who your people are? Do you know who they are? Probably have to go home and sleep on it, really, and wake up in the morning and think, oh, yeah, they're my people. It's a, you know, I've been thinking about this for a long time, long before I was asked to do this, and I've probably changed the title of the talk just to put it in because I couldn't think what else to talk about. Um, we're going to pray together in a moment a psalm, and then at the end of the psalm, in typical St. Aldate's, we're just going to stand here and just, perhaps Serenus, you'll just play a, a few sort of little bit in the background while we just call out to the Lord for my people. And if you don't know who your people are, just, I mean, your people may be the doctors whom, with whom you work. Your people may be the gym club to which you belong. My people may be the allotment to which I go to every other day. You know, my people is the people that God has placed me among. But it's not just my people that God has placed me among, but it's my people out there who I know about and I hear about who belong to the body of Christ and who are suffering and who need to be released. So we're going to say this psalm, if that's all right with you. Then we're going to start praying out loud. And then Serenus is going to lead us in a song that you all know. Uh, but let's just look through this psalm. This is one of the problems with this whole business of peoples and nations. Look at this psalm. Clap your hands, all you nations. The Hebrew word is not nations. The Hebrew word is peoples. It should be clap your hands, all you peoples. Because that's what God wants, all his peoples. Verse 3. Can you show verse 3, Nikki? Nikki's running the church, by the way, at the moment. Everybody else is on hold. He subdues nations under us. That word there, loomy. That's nations. And then if you look down to verse 9, 8. Verse 8. God reigns over the nations. It doesn't say peoples and it doesn't say nations. It says Gentiles, those who are not Jews. God wants them to know the, about the light of God. Do you see what I mean? And we've got a problem in our Bibles that people who have translated them are sort of interpreting to you what they think it should say. But they don't say that in the Hebrew. I just thought I'd point that out. Um, that's verse, look it up somewhere. Look it up in a Strong's parallel concordance and it'll show you the exact words. So this is Psalm 47, that was verses 1, 3, and 8, where it says nations and they are actually different words and mean different. But let's try this thing. Let's just stand up. And if you feel embarrassed, just stand there and smile and think this will be over in 10 minutes. So we're going to say this and then we're going to, I'm going to encourage you just to call out for your peoples. I'll get away from the microphone so that you don't hear all of who my peoples are. Uh, it might be my family that I want to cry out for because I want them all to be in and under the reign and rule of God. Let's say this together. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. How awesome is the Lord most high the great king over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amidst the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, Sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. 
Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham, for the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. And so let's just, as Serena's plays, let's just begin quietly and begin calling out to the Lord for my people. Let my people go that they might be able to worship me. Let my people go. Lord, we cry out to you for our people. Lord, we cry out to you for the people of this nation. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Let's do a good Anglican thing and say that three times and we get it into our system. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Let my people go so that they may worship me. So a moment of final prayer. And I'm praying that as each one of us goes, you have courage to pray for your people, both the people to whom you belong in the sense of ethnicity or DNA or whatever, but also to pray for those people that you know are out there today who are suffering for the name of Jesus. Let my people go. And thirdly, I just urge uh, I was urged by that story that I was reminded of about the person, the church that never ever prayed that the Berlin Wall coming would come down. And do you know why they didn't pray for that? Because they believed it was impossible. So add to your prayer list, something that is so totally impossible is the God of impossible. So as we stand in these last moments and we hear the blessing of the Lord. And if you've come this evening and there's something that's been bugging you and it hasn't been addressed, it's nothing to do with what here, but you just think the Lord's totally forgotten about you in a particular way, or you're totally scared about what's happening in our world, just before I say the blessing, just put your hand in the air you're signaling to the Lord that you need his power, his peace, his strength. Don't be shy. Put a hand up. God bless you. Put your hand up. God bless you. God bless you. Nobody's looking. And so may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, come into these dear ones who have got their hands raised, who are already praying for something that seems impossible in their own lives or in their family life or in their circumstances. Lord, may the peace of God which passes all understanding come into their hearts keep their hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And may the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest and remain on each one of you, now and forevermore. Amen.